Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. It's good to be with you today. What a beautiful day. Thank you for the special music. Hmm. Praise be to God. Well, this nativity scene that we observed together during our scripture reading, uh, it assures us that uh, the virgin shall be with child and she shall bear a son and that Joseph was to name this child Jesus Uh, For he shall save his people from their sins. And we also read that uh, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord and through the prophet. So as we begin today, what I'd like us to first recognize um, is is the idea that this, this virgin giving birth, it isn't something that originated with New Testament Christianity. It's not not something that Christians came up with to explain uh, what we believe in our religion. Uh, No, that that expectation did not originate from the New Testament. A virgin giving birth was introduced by a Hebrew prophet. His name was Isaiah. He lived more than 700 years before Mary gave birth to Jesus Christ. The scene in Bethlehem, it arises from Old Testament prophecy. And the prophet Isaiah, uh, he's still respected by ethnic Jews uh, as one of the greatest in this day. Um, And it is Isaiah who first prophesies to Israel, quote, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. That's Isaiah 7, verse 14. And it was just last night that we learned that uh, the, the name Emmanuel means God with us. The, bobber, the baby's proper name is going to be Jesus. That, that name means Savior. But Jesus is also going to be referred to as Emmanuel. That means it is God with us. He's supernaturally conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is truly the Son of God. But he's also naturally born to a woman. The child is also truly man. He's the only God-man. Jesus is the Savior called Emmanuel. And we also learned last night that this happened on what we would consider the first Christmas when Jesus was seen lying in a manger. It was the first Noel. That term Noel... Uh, originates from the French language. It, it means birth. And the first Noel 
the angels did say was to certain poor shepherds in fields as they lay, in fields where they lay, keeping their sheep on a cold winter's night that was so deep. Noel, 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 Noel. Born is the king of Israel. So Israel's savior king has been born. That is a historical event that Jews should have been, actually would have been, and, and were expecting. In fact, uh, there is a wicked King Herod. You can continue to read about him in Matthew chapter 2. Uh, he was very troubled when he had learned uh, from Magi who were traveling from the east uh, that the king of Israel had been born. That, that greatly troubled him. Uh, if this news were true, uh, Herod's authority would have been rightly questioned by everybody. Therefore, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 4, Herod, uh, we are told, gathered together all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, well, in Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what has been written by the prophet Micah. And you, quoting Micah, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So they knew. No surprise he was born in Bethlehem. No surprise there was a Messiah to them. Uh, so we are, to, we are to notice that it was no secret in Israel, that Scripture did surely teach that a coming Savior or a Messiah was to be born King of Israel. I was approached recently. The question that many of you might share today, how were Jews during the Old Testament saved? How were people during the Old Testament, Israel and Abraham and even prior, saved? Since Jesus had not yet been born, he had not yet died on the cross for sins, what constituted salvation? That, that forgiveness of sins uh, for ancient people such as those who lived in Israel. And it actually surprises me a little bit that this question gets answered in contrasting ways, even conflicting ways. Uh, if you have an original edition of the Schofield Study Bible, that's 1909, original condition, it had a notation that implied Old Testament, Old Testament Jews were saved through faithfully observing the Mosaic Law. Of course, like us, uh, admittedly they sinned, it is proposed, uh, but some today uh, suggest that there were provisions for sins in the law, various sacrifices that an Israelite could make. So all the Jews had to do was observe the law, and 
ensured that they offered the right sacrifices at the right times. Do you sense a problem with that? Well, that at its foundation is a works-based salvation. And we learn from the New Testament scriptures, this would be Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Well, this statement in Galatians, it was, uh, uh, by the way, written by the Apostle Paul, who, who was previously the most zealous Pharisee of his day, named Saul. And Paul also revealed that in his previous occupation, I guess I'll just call it Phariseeism, I don't know what else to call it. In his previous occupation, quote, as to the righteousness which is in the law, he was to be reckoned as blameless. Well, that indicates that Saul excelled at his profession at keeping it all. Not indicating that he was sinless, uh, no, but by making the, the appropriate sacrifices always at the prescribed times and according to the ceremonies, meaning th this Saul, he did the law right. He had it as together as anyone in Israel. But yet he concluded, you know, yep, I, I, I was one... Uh, I had one that had to count all of that law-keeping as rubbish that I might gain Christ. And the righteousness of God, which comes on the basis of faith. You can reference that in Philippians chapter 3 if you like. Folks, these are the conclusions of a, of a professional clergyman. I mean, if Paul or Saul the Pharisee couldn't attain the righteousness of salvation through keeping the law, how is the average smuck like me going to do? No, not well. Not well. So you and I can't get to heaven or can't earn forgiveness by keeping the Ten Commandments. Is one element of the law. Uh, rather, the law serves as a tutor which reveals to us the magnitude of which we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All you have to do is look at the law and say, I, I haven't kept that. I haven't loved my neighbor as myself. Anybody here love your neighbor as yourself? Hand up your gifts that you opened this morning. Pass them my way. <laughs> All I've accomplished is failing to keep the Ten Commandments. But God's grace is more than sufficient and abundant. Another view of how Jews might have been saved is similar by suggesting people during the Old Testament weren't saved by keeping the law, uh, no one prior to Jesus Christ successfully did that. Uh, but they might have been saved by having faith that God had provided through the Mosaic law a system for, for forgiveness. You know, even if they didn't keep the system. The problem with that is that it is nowhere stated in Scripture and 
that actually goes against what the old covenant, old covenant actually taught about the law. You can find many places in the Old Testament, but especially at the close of Deuteronomy, uh, clearly and repeatedly stating that the law demands perfect obedience. You, you can't fail at any single point and keep the law. Add to that, even if hypothetically an imperfect Jew did have faith that the law is perfect, and the law is perfect, right? But even if a Jew did have faith that the law of God is perfect, uh, it was still an inadequate object of their faith. That was demonstrated by the legalistic Pharisees. If anybody had uh, faith in the law, the Pharisees thought that the law could save them. Uh, there's a lingering problem with that as well. A letter in Scripture, it's written to ethnic Jews. It's, we know it as the book of Hebrews. It states in Hebrews 10 verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So cross that one off the list. There's one more that you might commonly hear from yeah, certain TV evangelists. I know there's one down in, in, in San Antonio that likes to blow this horn. He insists Jews are saved merely because they're genetic ethnic descendants of Abraham. They're saved because they're Jews. Um, that, that, is, that is a surprisingly common error, folks. Um, there's just no way that can be reconciled with scriptural reality. If ethnicity were the basis of salvation, it would mean that no Jew would ever be condemned. When scripture reveals that many, in fact, most Jews were condemned, for their unbelief, and only a small remnant from each generation of Israel was ever saved. Just as it is written, Romans 9.13, God said, Jacob I loved, but Esau I have hated. So being Jewish couldn't save you. No, no, there had to be some other basis. Had to be some other basis in the old Testament, by which people were saved, and Scripture would propose that it all points to Noel, a birth. If you've been attending church for some time, uh, maybe hanging around Christians for a while, you may have heard the term proto-evangelium. The first half of the word proto means first, evangelium means gospel, and theologians use this big word proto-evangelium to refer to what is often identified as the first appearance, or, or at least an allusion to the gospel. First time in scripture. And you might be surprised to learn that the proto-evangelium, it appears all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, the first gospel is proclaimed by God himself immediately after Adam and Eve fell. Immediately after they fell into sin 
And it is announced as part of God's curse upon Satan himself, oh, that deceiver and that serpent. Yet God also announces this gospel before telling Adam and Eve their consequences in the curse. The pain in childbearing, uh, the toil in labor comes before that. Yes, even before God reveals to Adam and Eve the human race is cursed, the Lord proclaims there will be redemption first. To the devil, God said, Oh, cursed are you. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, He, referring to the woman's seed, he shall crush you on the head and you will bruise his heel. In the Garden of Eden, God reveals there will come a seed. That's that's a descendant of woman who will crush Satan's head and whom the serpent bruises on the heel. But folks, this is an epic showdown. The wound to Satan will be mortal to the head. But the bruise to the descendant of the woman, well, it'll be on the heel. You've probably already sensed uh, yourselves, obviously, the seed of the woman is Jesus Christ. And the crushing of the serpent occurs at the cross at Calvary. a crushing to Satan's head. But Jesus dies. Figure that one out. Yes, but he is also raised. It was Christ who willingly gave himself to die for our sins on the cross. That that penalty for our sins, his suffering and his death, it was applied By God the Father, not Satan. Satan doesn't punish Christ on the cross with sins. Uh, No, that that weight of sin is applied, uh, isn't applied by the devil at Calvary. That that would be self-defeating for him. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah, once again, Chapter 53 and verse 4, he prophesies of God's sinless son dying on the cross. Isaiah writes, quote, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Wow. Folks, it is Satan who was crushed. I've seen the, the Passion film. It's, uh, it's a good, good uh, film, good cinema. 
a um, few things in there that maybe are embellished a little bit. I don't think ultimately Satan took all that much pleasure in Christ's suffering on the cross. I'll admit I didn't have time this week to do an exhaustive search of exactly Satan's disposition at that moment to where he was, uh, if Scripture reveals it clearly, um, where was he when Christ suffered and died. But the cross is where Satan's head was crushed under the heel of Christ. For, for the serpent, serpent that, that was a fatal wound. The president of Dallas Theological Seminary, actually the previous president, uh, Mark Bailey, used to tell us students that in Genesis 3, verse 15, follow this. Satan does not cause this injury or bruise to Christ. And that the Hebrew language doesn't demand that explanation. Rather, the bruise to Christ's heel, which is poetic imagery, the bruise is better understood as a result of the severe crushing of Satan's head. So, violent, so violently did Jesus, Jesus crush Satan's head that our Savior bruised his heel. That is how defeated Christ, uh, Christ, how he defeats Satan at the cross. He crushes him with his heel. What a brilliant picture of Christ at Calvary in Genesis chapter 3. They didn't yet know his name would be Jesus. They didn't know everything about him that we know. But isn't that something? What a picture. The Proto-Evangelium, that first preaching of a gospel, occurred in the Garden of Eden. And through faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, Christians now know that Satan has no authority or power over us. Christ is our Savior. But if you were thinking to yourself, boy, it is so clear that Calvary became a, came for Satan a fatal blow to his head, a mortal wound. Um, and yet it's almost, it's almost as if his fatal wound was healed. And, and this beast, this serpent, has come back to life. And it's, today it's as if the whole world is, is following after him, amazed at his power. You might be asking, is there anywhere else in Scripture that speaks to this phenomenon? Possibly. Depending upon how you interpret the symbolism of Revelation chapter 13. A little study for you later. That is a different sermon for a different day. But beginning already with Adam and Eve, the saint in the Old Testament had faith in God's promise that there would come a seed 
an offspring, a a descendant birthed by woman, not a seed of man. Because God is his father, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and born of a woman, a virgin, that first Noel. So there exists illusions, uh, shades and shadows of the virgin birth already in Genesis chapter 3. There is also an implied element of divinity in this seed of the woman, uh, who, who, who this seed who is not only going to stand up to the serpent, uh, this seed is furthermore going to completely crush the enemy. Knowing that Satan is the god of this world, little g, he, he has blinded the minds of those who are perishing. He reigns over the spiritual forces of darkness and wickedness in the heavenly places, 1 Corinthians 4, Ephesians 6. And realizing that, that Satan's angelic powers, they're extraordinary. So extraordinary to the point that Michael the archangel doesn't dare to pronounce a railing judgment against him, but rather says, the Lord rebuke you, Jude 9. And with Lucifer being this powerful, what does that indicate about this seed of the woman who's going to crush him? More powerful. Clearly, the spiritual power and authority of this descendant in Genesis chapter 3 will be infinitely greater than Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. To crush Satan's head, this descendant of the woman would have to be divine. And you know the answer to this question. Is there any, any such thing as partially divine? Omniscience, knowing everything. Omnipotence, power of everything. uh, Omnipresence, present everywhere. Folks, this seed has to be either fully divine or not at all divine. Folks, the son of the woman in Genesis 3.15 shall also be God. Son of God, Son of Man, the first Noel born in the land. And Genesis 3.15 promises Adam and Eve redemption through him even before the curse is announced. I think we now we're getting the picture. It's an image, it's a portrait of this Savior that begins to be painted right in Genesis 3, and the picture gets filled in throughout the Old Testament. It's fully seen, the portrait is fully seen at the cross. Jacob wrestles with him at Bethel. Christ the rock provides spiritual food and spiritual water to Israel as they wander in the wilderness. We already learned in our study in in the book of Acts uh, that King David prophesied in the Psalms uh, that evil men would pierce the Savior's hands and feet and divide his clothing. To do so, they would cast lots. 
Isaiah said, He poured himself out to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many. So how were believers living during the Old Testament saved from their sins? By God's grace through faith. And what was the object of their faith before Israel completely understood the cross at Calvary? They believed in a Savior who would be born of a woman, the first Noel. The Magi asked Herod, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. In John chapter 11, Martha replied to Jesus, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Simon Peter declared, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And to the shepherds, the angel did say, Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Noel, 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 Noel. Born is the King of Israel. Amen.